0: The Prophet Hosea said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Well, hi. My name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast. And it's about 4.30 in the morning. (laughs) Uh, For some reason, ever since we took a trip to Scotland, I just haven't been able to (laughs) sleep much past that. But anyway, uh, you know, at this time of the morning, if you're not used to being up now, it's it's generally just dark outside (laughs) this time of year. Well, this is episode number five in the series titled Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. This series is based on my new book out by the same title, and that's available on Amazon.com. When he was 18 years old, King Josiah sent his scribe, Shaphan, to Hilkiah, the high priest. He sent him with some money to remodel the temple in Jerusalem. By this time in history, almost all the ten tribes of Israel from the northern kingdom had been taken into captivity by the king of Assyria because of their continual transgressions against God. The people of the tribe of Judah, who were part of the southern kingdom, had not been any more loyal to God. Their transgressions, including idol worship, started about 300 years earlier with King David's son, Solomon. The book of 1st and 2nd Kings documents that one king after another for over 500 years did not do right in the sight of God. They built many images of false gods and altars to worship them on. It wasn't until the time of Josiah's great-grandfather, Hezekiah, that any king of either the northern kingdom of Israel... Or the southern kingdom of Judah had done right in the sight of God. But after Hezekiah, the southern kingdom again turned to their false religious practices. Regardless of God manifesting himself as though dwelling among the Jews in the temple at Jerusalem, and notwithstanding the fact that he'd gave them the law to live by and prophets to guide them, the religion of Judaism had once again become no better than the pagans' religion. The solution for getting back on track had been forgotten and perhaps literally covered in dust. But the solution was right in front of them. We don't know how long the scrolls containing the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, had been lost or ignored and unread. Perhaps moving everything around the temple for the remodel job exposed them but once Hilkiah, the high priest, found the scrolls, he informed the king's scribe, quote, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, unquote. Shaphan, what a cool name, <laughs> read the scrolls to his king, Josiah. Josiah proved to be a king who, after the pattern of King David, did right in the sight of God. When Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes in an act of mourning. He recognized that his forefathers had not been living according to the words written in the book. King Josiah called for the elders of Judah. He went up to the temple with the elders, the priests, the prophets, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It was there that he read aloud, this is another quote, all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord, unquote. Finishing the reading with all his heart and all his soul, he made a covenant to follow the Lord and keep the commandments he just read. Then the people, quote, took a stand for the covenant, unquote, meaning they all agreed with and supported what Josiah was doing concerning the covenant. As a result, some changes were to be made. Besides a wooden idol found there, the temple had been filled with other articles that were made for Baal, Ashereth, and for all the hosts of heaven. Now get this, in the temple, there were what were called ritual booths of the perverted persons. They'd been created in the temple, and this is supposedly where sacred prostitution took place. This is in the temple in Jerusalem. Josiah inherited a kingdom that rivaled the worst pagan nations in the world. Within the land of Yahweh's chosen people, there were dozens of pagan religious practices taking place under the roof of the temple. A hybridized Judeo-pagan religion existed, complete with an authoritarian, priestly hierarchy watching over the entire system. The blasphemous pagan practices which had been accepted by most of the kings, priests, and the people had gone on for hundreds of years. This is God's chosen people. What was God going to use to fix the problem and bring his people back to where they needed to be? It was the Holy Scripture. Taking a new look at Scripture was like a cold slap in the face. It pointed out the extreme contrast between what they'd become and what God said they should be. The raw, untampered with, word of God made obvious how far they had strayed from the truth. Well, that is our same hope today. Jesus told His disciples that if someone loves Him, they will keep His commandments. Those commandments being the things that He, the Messiah, had taught them. The Greek word translated as keep means to guard or hold fast to something. In other words, if you love Jesus, you'll keep in mind and live according to what he said to the best of your ability. Jesus assured his apostles that the Holy Spirit would cause them to recall all the things that Jesus had said to them. Later, just before ascending to heaven, when Jesus gave the disciples what many call the Great Commission, Jesus told his apostles to teach all things that I have commanded you. Well, one way the apostles fulfilled this commission was to make sure the life of Jesus was recorded in the Gospels. They also provided further instruction on Jesus' behalf, which is contained in the letters of the New Testament. There's much that's contributed to the modern church culture we live in. Just as what happened to Israel, We now live in a time of hybridized Christian pagan religion, complete with an authoritarian priestly hierarchy watching over the entire system. You might not think it can happen to us, but I mean, look, this was where God's temple was in Jerusalem that it happened to. You don't think it can happen to us? It has happened to us. It's not only dust that covers the Holy Scriptures today. There might not be any dust (laughs) on the Bible sitting in churches, but I'll tell you, What needs to be cleared off is 2,000 years of accumulated religious muck. And that's the nice way of putting it. Like tearing down all the high places, grinding up the idols, and burning the implements of the false gods to get at the truth, we gotta cut through 2,000 years of unbiblical tradition. We have to look past the divisive practices of the tens of thousands of denominations in the world today and rise above the ungodly culture that surrounds us and completely re-examine church doctrines and what's popularly taught, which is what's called orthodoxy. And once we've looked at the scriptures again with fresh eyes, not just the same old, let's repeat the sermon that you heard six months ago, eyes, we got to set aside what we find to be anti-biblical. Even that which is taught in seminaries. we got to replace all of it with whatever fresh, careful study of Scripture reveals. You might be thinking to yourself, Doug, (laughs) my church isn't doing a bunch of ungodly, unbiblical things. Well, just stand by. They might not be bad things. You might be doing a bunch of great things in your church. I am not saying that. But, as for what's supported by the Bible, just stand by. Give going through Scripture a chance to point out what may be unbiblical, what may in fact be anti-biblical. Let's just take a look at it together. How we came to this place where all this needs to happen, that we need to re-examine Scripture, that is going to be the topic of many future podcasts, That like the next section in the book. So in this series, Stand By, those are in the future. But in the meantime, for the next several episodes, we're going to conduct a brief study, a brief survey of the New Testament. We're going to look at the very basis of the existence of the ecclesia and what it exists to do. We're going to glean principles regarding how the ecclesia is supposed to corporately function when the ecclesia, the called out ones, get together. This isn't going to be a commentary based on an exhaustive exegesis of Scripture. This isn't going to be like a sermon you're going to hear in church every Sunday on what we the specific things we need to do are. This is going to be a summary of conclusions that's based on an exhaustive study of Scripture. I am not asking you to trust my conclusions. I'm asking you to please don't. Please maintain a healthy skepticism of what I'm saying as you check out what I am saying. I am asking you to temporarily set aside traditional teaching and study for yourself what I'm going to be covering. Consider the briefcases I make, but please check out everything that I'm saying to you on this podcast. Good quality study takes time. Learning how to study scripture takes time. Well, there's no rush, but you have no time to waste. You literally have the rest of your life to prepare for Jesus' return. But as I've learned from experiencing two heart attacks and being zapped back to life, after what some define as dying, your life can end sooner than you expect. Anyone who's invested their life into the church, going to church and being a real part of it, may be left with a feeling of being overwhelmed and helpless and confused or even discouraged by the information that I'm going to be presenting. It may leave some feeling like their faith has been undermined. Not to worry. You know, please don't, but that's easily said. The solution is as simple as Josiah's rediscovery of the truth, the Scriptures. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life is always waiting for us in the scriptures where the truth about God is to be found. In the New Testament, where do we draw the line of directly what pertains to the ecclesia, the called out ones, and when they get together? Doesn't the New Testament solely deal with the actions of the church? Uh, Spoiler alert, nope. (laughs) For decades, I've heard many different pastors justify practices of the church by using and misusing scriptural passages. Week after week, we may listen to a pastor say something like, Turn with me now to the book of X, chapter Y and verse Z. He waits. There we will see why, as a church, we need to do A, B, and C. It would take volumes to address each use and misuse of Scripture that are used to define the church's religious practices. With limited exceptions, I'm not going to do that. Instead of focusing on all the specific passages that are misused, we're going to consider the direct instruction found in the New Testament to the Ecclesia of Jesus using these guidelines I'm going to list for you here. We're only going to look at passages directly referencing the ecclesia and passages that are foundational to the basis of the ecclesia scripture pertaining to the assembly of the ecclesia. We'll look at any mention of the roles or offices in the ecclesia. You might think of them right now as like a, um, a pastor or a preacher or a bishop or a deacon or elder. We'll look at passages regarding relationships between members of the Ecclesia when they get together and any guidelines surrounding the rituals and practices of the Ecclesia, things that we turn into a religion. Now, what will not qualify for inclusion in this study of the Ecclesia are like the general teachings of Jesus. All right. So cut out half the Gospels. (laughs) The moral code, non specific things that uh, don't pertain directly to the ecclesia. We're not going to look at the principles of the gospel that are not specific to the gathering of the called out ones. We won't look at minor misconceptions about church practices or instructions to individual believers rather than the corporate believers. That is most of Jesus' teaching. So there's a lot that we're not going to be looking at in this survey of the New Testament. We will be going through the New Testament sequentially, starting with the book of Matthew. And when we come to a passage introducing a topic addressed in multiple places in the New Testament, I'm going to include the bulk of the discussion on that topic the first time we come across it. Because of the first three books of the New Testament, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, you know, they're kind of Uh, they're saying the same thing from different perspectives. They all deal with the same topics from three different authors. You shouldn't expect to see many new topics introduced after the Gospel of Matthew. So that's what we're going to do right now. Let's get doing it. The Gospel of Matthew. Although there's always someone who's going to relate every scripture found in the Bible to the church, I'm amazed how little the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John directly say about what should take place when the ecclesia assembles. Despite the lack of direct instruction, the Gospels do establish the only basis for the existence of the ecclesia and its purposes. What Jesus taught regarding the ecclesia in the Gospels does not support what we think of as church today those committed to following the biblical record of what Jesus taught may have a few sacred cows that they're going to need to give over to our high priest Jesus to slaughter. Now let's start, believe it or not, in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to skip over the first couple of chapters here. And the uh, topic at hand is preaching. Well, Matthew 3, verse 1, finds John the baptizer preaching in the wilderness. Preaching literally means to proclaim or publish or herald something. Preaching is the authoritative issuing of advice. Although teaching, pastoring, and evangelizing are specifically mentioned in scripture in the context of roles or responsibilities within the ecclesia, preaching is not mentioned as one of those roles, believe it or not. The letters of the apostle contain preaching. Many times when we read about preaching or proclaiming occurring in the New Testament as opposed to teaching, it's in the context of evangelism directed at unbelievers. In their letters, however, the apostles also use preaching, which is the authoritative issuing of advice, in their letters to admonish those who belong to Jesus. The apostles and Jesus proclaimed many preventative warnings regarding false doctrines and teachers. But preaching most often occurred in response to problems that arose among the called out. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying here. Preaching is not mentioned as a part of the ecclesia's gathering. Let's move on to chapter 3, verse 15, and we'll be dealing with baptism here. So John the Baptist was in the wilderness to preach repentance and to baptize people. Among the Hebrews, baptism was born out of the Jewish ritual of cleansing by immersing oneself in a ceremonial pool known as a mikvah. The pool was to be a natural collection of water. Rainwater collected in a man-made pool qualified. John used this ritual, baptizing, to cleanse and symbolize the cleansing of one's old self away and start a new fresh direction. This was a physical act that demonstrated intellectual repentance. The mikvah cleansing ritual was something that repeatedly took place in the faithful's life. It can be compared to the Islamic, and I'm sorry if I mispronounce this word, wudu, w-u-d-u. And that's the purification ritual that they perform prior to their daily prayers in which they wash themselves. You may have seen that like on a movie or TV or something. Well, the mikvah ritual, which so many compare baptism to now, took place not just once, but any time one became ritualistically impure. So in order to address recurring sin and repentance, people may have felt compelled to be baptized more than once. The act of baptism was not originally associated with a one-time mystical or supernatural experience that changed a person. It served as a, like a significant cultural milestone for the one getting baptized to look back at as a reminder of a change that was in their lives. It was a public act that proclaimed to those witnessing the intentions of the one being baptized. In this way, the baptized felt a self-imposed accountability towards those witnessing the act. There was more than one reason to be baptized. It didn't always have to do with repentance. In Jesus' case, for example, he was not repenting for sins and heading off in a new direction of not sinning. His baptism symbolized leaving his personal life behind and beginning his full-time ministry. Those being baptized did so as an outward sign of something on the inside of them. It's what they were saying that they were going to commit to on the inside. At one point, the Pharisees learned that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more new disciples than John the Baptist was baptizing. Well, that implies that they were not only being baptized to indicate their repentance, but were also saying that they had become followers of Jesus' teaching. Whereas John baptized people who had repented, Paul later re-baptized some of those who decided to follow Jesus. Baptism was the milestone marker for the time they decided to follow Jesus. Baptism evolved a little bit. Peter tells us that baptism symbolizes Noah's ark passing through the waters of the flood. Those on board were saved because of the ark. In the case of baptism, rather than an ark doing the saving, it's Jesus. The act of baptism is a declaration of aligning oneself with the only one worthy of a clear conscience, Jesus. (laughs) Baptism has been likened for the Christian to circumcision for the Jew. Well, that's wrong for several reasons, not the least of which is that only male Jews were commanded to be circumcised why both male and females are baptized. Secondly, circumcision was a physical mark on a physical race of people without consideration for the attitude of one's heart. You're eight days old, you're going to get involuntarily circumcised, again, if you're male. On the other hand, baptism is a voluntary symbolic physical and intellectual act of a mature believer. It's a physical act which symbolizes a spiritual change. As we've read in Scripture, Jews, including Jesus, were both being baptized and circumcised because each act was for a different purpose. The comparison between circumcision and baptism is one way that the church has tried to superimpose itself over the top of Israel or Judaism, but only in a way that requires getting wet during baptism and not in a way that, <laughs> that involves cutting and bleeding during circumcision. How convenient is that? The idea of the law being done away with to gain salvation includes elimination of religious acts like circumcision. What good is it to replace one religious act with another? Wouldn't the same thing apply to baptism as circumcision? Listen to what Paul wrote. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law." That's found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2-4. to four. Well, In his letter to the Colossians, Paul tells us that the called out have been spiritually circumcised, the circumcision made without hands. In other words, it's a marking of the Spirit which designates the called out as Jesus' own eternal people. You don't need to be baptized to get this circumcision. In addition, Paul separates out the act of baptism from circumcision. The two acts represent two different things. One is spiritually done to us on the inside, that is, this circumcision of our heart. The other is an outward act reflecting that which is baptism. But the two acts are not the same. If we believe we're in better standing with God because we get baptized, we're not entirely dependent on what Jesus did for us. To depend on baptism negates what he's done for us. Baptism must not be looked at as an act of obedience which pleases God. Like it was for those in the days of John the Baptist, this is an act of memorial which marks as a turning point in the life of a believer. A physical act which we mortal humans can look back at as a monument marking where we had a change of heart. Many religious practices, such as baptism, are based on the original acts of Jesus and the apostles. Thank God, (laughs) the church didn't adopt the practice of going into the desert on a 40 day fast after we're baptized, or being scourged to the point of disfiguration. But if ever there was a religious ritual or sacrament that Jesus and his disciples participated in and subsequent followers were commanded to take part in, it is baptism. Baptism is clearly a biblically supported act. Once someone decided to follow Jesus in the New Testament, they almost always were immediately baptized. If you're not familiar with the term imperative, it means like a command, like you need to do this. Well, there are imperative commands associated with being baptized in the New Testament. The act of baptism derives its meaning, and was born out of a cultural custom from another far-off place and and long-ago time. It's, you know, it'd be unknown if not for our Christian culture. Well, surely it's not the act itself, but what the act represents that's important. Or is it? What the act of baptism symbolizes is important. But apparently, so is the act of baptism itself. It wasn't enough for new believers to say they believed. They were asked to engage in the action of baptism, which publicly proclaimed that they were placing their trust in Jesus. It was the initiation rite of passage into a new eternal future. Now, I have heard it argued several times, and you may hear it argued, that baptism was only significant during the New Testament times, because it was the cultural practice of that time. But today, that practice is completely irrelevant. I mean, who, who gets dunked to show anything anymore? I even heard one time somebody suggested that today, maybe the modern equivalent was we all go bowling. And we look back at the bowling match. Yet, the act of baptism has always been a part of Western culture since the time of Christ, in one form or another. That's been for the past 2,000 years. If any religious act is known by the secular world, it's baptism. Baptism, when participated in by someone who is mature enough to understand the act, still represents alignment with and surrender to Jesus. It might be frowned on or misunderstood by those who are not called to salvation, and it might seem weird to them, but baptism still suits the same purpose today. Baptisms were not performed as a part of any formal assembly or service in the New Testament. It wasn't like we're going to have a 6 months class and then we're at the end of it we're going to have a baptism Sunday. Nope. Biblical baptisms most often happened immediately or soon after someone came to Jesus. There was no church service to wait for and no catechism to instruct the candidate for for two years like we're going to see happen in church history. Since all members of the ecclesia are part of the priesthood of Jesus, baptisms could be performed by any believer on any new convert. When the Holy Spirit convinced someone who Jesus is, and they were ready to give themselves to him, they took off for the river and they got it done. And for now, that's about all I have to say about that. Let's move on. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is going to pertain to like the organic, do you like that word? I don't in particular, but it is the natural occurring assembly of the ecclesia. As the sermon on the mount demonstrates, Jesus sat down and taught his disciples wherever opportunity presented itself. Like John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, Jesus didn't wait for a particular time or place to sit down and instruct or talk to people. No church buildings, no bulletins, worship teams, podium, greeters, altars, kneeling pads, offering plates, nurseries, or coffee bars (laughs) were necessary. There's a story in the Gospel of John in which Jesus was in conversation with a Samaritan woman the topic of the appropriate place to worship came up. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans on the mountain Jesus and the woman were sitting on. Jesus told her that the time had arrived when location no longer mattered, because God is seeking those who worship Him in spirit and in truth, not in sanctuaries of churches. Clearly, for the called out who worship Him in spirit and truth God is not tied to physical locations or buildings. Matthew 5, verse 14. The church as a light to the world. Many a message on Sunday mornings has associated the light referred to in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 with the good works mentioned two verses later in 5.16. And that says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. As if the purpose of letting one's light shine is to flaunt one's good works and somehow bring glory to God. This thought has evolved in some churches into their mission and their very reason to exist. I have heard it said, it's all about service and good works. Yet, if it's all about anything, it's letting one's light shine. The question is, what is the light that we're talking about? The light is God's Son, Jesus. And he said as much. Matthew, quoting the prophet Isaiah, confirmed this. He said this, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. What's the good work or service that we could possibly accomplish that has any significance from God's perspective? It's the work of God that he's given us to do. What is that work? What is the work of God? It's simply belief in Jesus. I think that is such a simple statement. And it's like one of those, no, that's too simple. It's too good to be true type things that, that, just, that just blows right over most people's head. They just dismiss it, thinking, no, there's got to be so much more to it than that. Well, I'm going to be talking about that a lot later on. It's going to come up several times, but that is the work of God that Jesus himself says. It's belief in Jesus. Knowing that your light is God, his son, and his word. Well, knowing that, letting your light shine will reveal your good works. Your belief in God, His Son, and His Word. After all, Jesus was not in favor of making a show of anyone's deeds. He was opposed to it. Showing off your good deeds is an anti-biblical principle. Jesus was opposed to it. Soon after He said to let your light shine during the Sermon on the Mount, He also said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men, to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. That's found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus goes on to say that when you give, you should be so secretive as to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Why does anyone think the purpose of being a light on a hill involves parading around your good works? in front of people. That act, besides reeking of self-righteous arrogance, is specifically and strongly discouraged by Jesus. Jesus was speaking to a group of individuals when he said, let your your light shine. He was not speaking to a human corporation, for example, the church. What was his message to individuals? It was that when God is your light— And you don't hide that fact. The good work that will be exposed is your belief in God. It's others seeing that you've given your trust and your life over to God that will bring Him glory. It's not calling attention to yourself, your church, or the good deeds that you're doing in the community. Let's keep her going here. Let's talk about praying in secret. This is uh, based on Matthew chapter six verses 5 to 13. Have you ever wondered why the disciples needed to ask Jesus how to pray correctly? You'll find that question from the disciples to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 to 13, and Luke 11 verses 1 to 4. Wouldn't they have learned, or shouldn't they have learned, how to pray by Jesus' example already at that point? He prayed a lot. There's at least 38 times Jesus was documented to have prayed in the Gospels. Shouldn't the disciples have heard Jesus praying all the time? Well, not necessarily, because when Jesus prayed, with only a few exceptions, he was primarily communicating with God and not man. One noted exception is Jesus' high priestly prayer he broke into just before his betrayal recorded in John chapter 17. That seemingly took place in front of the disciples enough so that they could record what Jesus was saying. But unless it was for a specific purpose, like attributing a miracle to God, Jesus rarely prayed with the intention of being heard by others besides God. An example of when he did do this was when he prayed that Lazarus would rise from the dead. That's found in John chapter 11 verses 41 to 42. He specifically prayed then father i thank you that you have heard me and i know that you always hear me but because of the people who are standing by i said this that they may believe that you sent me that's an example of jesus saying something in a prayer to god that he knows other people are hearing you know to build their faith jesus did pray publicly before meals. But besides the traditional ceremonial prayers and blessings that go along with being a devout Jew, Jesus was very private about praying. He instructed others that when they pray, they should go into their closet and shut the door, praying in private rather than turning the prayer into a show. Now, Make no mistake, prayer is a big deal, In the life of a believer according to the New Testament. For example, Paul points out how prayer for others can clearly make the difference when he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul was counting on prayers. The question here does not concern the value of prayer. The question here is regarding how the ecclesia should function together regarding prayer. What emphasis should be placed on the corporate or group prayer? We're told when two or three agree together in prayer, whatever is asked will be done. But have we understood that scripture correctly? We see instances of the apostles asking various ecclesias to pray. However, we have no reason to think that these prayers were accomplished corporately rather than privately and individually. In the book of Acts, we read of early believers, quote, devoting themselves to prayer, unquote. That's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And continuing steadfastly in prayers, that's in Acts 2, verse 42. We have no reason to believe that they were doing so publicly. The Bible, or even when they got together, it could be when they were uh, by themselves. The Bible documents only a few times when the called out were assembled when they specifically prayed together. When they did pray together, it was like a natural reaction to something that had been concerning them, such as when Peter was imprisoned. Except for participating in the regular prayers associated with Judaism, including the blessing of meals, prayer never appears to have been reduced to a routine like, you know, now it's prayer time, or let's hear your prayer concerns, then we're going to do prayer time. Or we have the routine in many Bible studies of, uh, we're going to close our eyes now, and when somebody feels the need to pray, please pray, then the next person, and I'll close us in prayer. Almost a routine, right? Well, that We don't see any evidence of that happening in the Bible. Not saying that's a bad thing, just saying there is no biblical reason to think that that is something that should be done. It seems to be consistent with Jesus' instructions to pray in private, the fact that we don't see that happening. All of this to say, while individual private prayer is stressed in Scripture, it's odd with as much emphasis as is placed on praying together in church today. The importance of corporate prayer when the ecclesia assembles is not emphasized in Scripture. The instances where it is seen occurring among the primitive ecclesia, or the, uh, the first, the early ecclesia, is very underwhelming. If that's true, what are we to make of Jesus quoting the Scripture? My house is to be called a house of prayer. I can hear that coming up in in many of the scripturally learned's mind. Well, in that passage, Jesus was referring to God's only brick-and-mortar house He's ever had on the earth, the temple in Jerusalem. That's where His Shekinah glory once dwelled. There's no biblical basis to believe that any other man-made buildings, such as synagogues and churches today, were ever thought of or referred to As a house of God. The closest thing to God's house we find on earth today are those individual called out ones in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. It's said that 90% of communication is nonverbal. In this way, every word that the called out of God utter, every decision they make, every action they take, communicates something to God who sees all, hears all, and knows all of our innermost thoughts. The very lives of the individual ecclesias are prayers, communicating something to God. Truly, the very bodies of the called out are houses of prayer. In Psalms 19, the psalmist writes, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. In the same psalm, we read that the heavens declare the glory of God and day to day pours out speech. Nonverbal communication regarding God goes on continually throughout the universe. We're either living our faith or we're not. The very lives of the called out constitute prayers. Each called out one is a house of God, meaning the Holy Spirit indwells them. They are praying without ceasing most of the time, without it even being aware of it, the bodies of the called out are truly houses of prayer. If that's true, what are each of us saying to God right now in this moment? And with that question, we're going to call it good for this episode of the Called Out Cafe podcast. Next time, we're going to start off with talking about parading religion before men. But until then, You know, thank you so much for joining me and taking the time to do so. I know you've got a lot of choices on what to do with your time. Until next time, may God bless you richly. And Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at dughooley.com. Or email me at doug at That's doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y.com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.